Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over Moroni chapters 7 through 9 today. And these chapters are really the writings of Mormon. In chapter 7, it's a sermon to the other righteous members of the church who, like us, were living in a spiritually decaying society. And chapters 8 and 9 are letters to Moroni about doctrinally significant things. Remember that both Mormon and Moroni saw our day, so including this information is very relevant to what we are going through we can liken these scriptures to us and our situation. Verse 3 in chapter 8 says, Wherefore I would speak unto you that are of the church, that are the peaceable followers of Christ, that have obtained a sufficient hope by which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord, from this time henceforth until ye shall rest with him in heaven. So this is written to us, but I want to talk about the rest of the soul. President Joseph F. Smith said this is a very significant passage. The rest here referred to is not physical rest, for there is no such thing as physical rest in the church of Jesus Christ. Reference is made to the spiritual rest and peace which are born from a settled conviction of the truth in the minds of men. We may thus enter into the rest of the Lord today by coming to an understanding of the truths of the gospel. Not all need to seek this rest, for there are many who now possess it whose minds have become satisfied, and who have set their eyes upon the mark of their high calling with an invincible determination in their hearts to be steadfast in the truth, and who are treading in humility and righteousness the path marked out for the saints who are complacent followers of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we can find rest and peace in our lives, even in this tumultuous world that we are living in, by knowing that the Savior is going to win, and that if we're on his side, we will win as well. That is true peace. That is true rest. Seek for that. Verses 6 through 9 say, For behold, God hath said a man being evil cannot do that which is good. For if he offereth a gift or prayeth unto God, except he shall do it with real intent, it profiteth him nothing. So here we're talking about real intent. Verse 7, For behold, it is not counted unto him for righteousness. For behold, if a man being evil giveth a gift, he doeth it grudgingly. Wherefore, it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. Wherefore, he is counted evil before God. And likewise also it is counted evil unto a man if he shall pray and not with real intent of heart. Yea, and it profiteth him nothing, for God receiveth none such. And I got to be honest with you. The last time that I really studied this section of scripture in the Book of Mormon, these scriptures hit me like a ton of bricks. I was serving without real intent. I, my heart was not in my calling, and I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. Dallin H. Oaks said, Scriptures make clear that in order to purify our service in the church and to our fellow men, it is necessary to consider not only how we serve, but also why we serve. He said, number one, some may serve for hope of earthly reward. Number two, another reason for service is to obtain good companionship. Number three, some may serve out of fear of punishment. Number four, other persons may serve out of a sense of duty or out of loyalty to friends or family or traditions. Number five, one such higher reason for service is the hope of an eternal reward. Number six, the highest reason of all, charity. It is not enough to serve God with all of our might and strength. He looks into our hearts and knows our minds, demands more than this. In order to stand blameless before God at the last day, we must also serve him with all our heart and mind. 
In preparing for this podcast, I was comforted to know that I'm not the only one who sometimes serves out of a sense of duty or pure expectation. In fact, I came across a story by Elder Marion G. Romney where he was asked to contribute more money than he thought he should have been asked to help construct a chapel. And he made his contribution over time, but he did so out of a sense of duty only because he knew it would look bad for someone in his position to shirk. He resented being put in that position, and when he read these verses, he realized his folly and repented by making several more payments given in humility. So fortunately, we have a way to repent, and we have a remedy for such feelings, which is charity. And we'll go deeper into that topic in just a bit. Verses 12 through 13 talk about how to discern between good and evil. Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. Pretty simple. If it's encouraging you to seek God, it's good. But how do we know that it is good? And the truth is, is that we know in verse 16 by the Spirit of Christ. Verse 16 says, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. And I love how he says, by using the light of Christ, we can discern between good and evil. And light is intelligence, or as it says in the scriptures, truth and knowledge. And in reality, light of Christ is a bit redundant. And these scriptures teach us that we are born with the light of Christ. But I think there's a more accurate description that we can use. And that is that our spirits were created from the same light as Christ's. In the book of Abraham, we learn that we were intelligences before we were created spiritually. And intelligence is defined as light, truth, and knowledge. So this light that we are at our very core is designed to grow brighter and brighter until the perfect day when we are just like our Savior. Our spirit's light will naturally draw toward light or to those things that are good and come from God. In this way, everyone is born with the ability to choose good or evil. However, for those who have let the physical body dominate the soul, the choice breaks down to appetites and desires of the flesh and suppresses the light that would seek higher and righteous things. In saying this, many people think that the light of Christ is the same thing as the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is also light, so the feelings are the same, but there is a difference. Joseph Fielding Smith said, The Holy Ghost should not be confused with the Spirit, which fills the immensity of space, and which is everywhere present. This other spirit is impersonable and has no size nor dimension. It proceeds forth from the presence of the Father and the Son in all things. We should speak of the Holy Ghost as a personage, as he, and this other spirit as it, although when we speak of the power or gift of the Holy Ghost, we may properly say it. The Holy Ghost, as we are taught in our modern revelation, is the third member in the Godhead and a personage of spirit. These terms are used synonymously, Spirit of God, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Truth, Holy Spirit, Comforter, all having reference to the Holy Ghost. The same terms largely are used in relation to the Spirit of Jesus Christ, also called the Light of Truth, Light of Christ, Spirit of God, and Spirit of the Lord, and yet they are separate and distinct things. We have a great deal of confusion because we have not kept that clearly in our minds. On the flip side of that, in verse 17, we learn that whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge that it is of the devil. 
As a word of warning and caution about spiritual impressions, President Packer said, The spiritual part of us and the emotional part of us are so closely linked that it is possible to mistake an emotional impulse for something spiritual. We occasionally find people who receive what they assume to be spiritual promptings from God, when those promptings are either centered in the emotions or are from the adversary. So how do we do this? How do we know what the difference is? Verse 19 says, Wherefore I beseech of you, brethren, that ye should search diligently in the light of Christ, that ye may know good from evil. And if you will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, ye certainly will be a child of Christ. So we need to let that light of Christ grow brighter and brighter each and every day, seeking and cleaving unto that which is right and true. The rest of chapter 7 talks about the three-legged stool of faith, hope, and charity. M. Russell Ballard said, The Apostle Paul taught that three divine principles form a foundation upon which we can build the structures of our lives. They are faith, hope, and charity. Together they give us a base of support like the legs of a three-legged stool. Each principle is significant within itself, but each also plays an important supporting role. Each is incomplete without the others. Hope helps faith develop. Likewise, true faith gives birth to hope. When we begin to lose hope, we are faltering also in our measures of faith. The principles of faith and hope working together must be accompanied by charity, which is the greatest of all. According to Mormon, charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. It is the perfect manifestation of our faith and hope. Working together, these three eternal principles will help give us the broad eternal perspective we need to face life's toughest challenges including the prophesied ordeals of the last days. Real faith fosters hope for the future. It allows us to look beyond ourselves and our present cares. Fortified by hope, we are moved to demonstrate the pure love of Christ through daily acts of obedience and Christian service. Neil A. Maxwell described the relationship of faith and hope this way. He said, Faith and hope are constantly interactive and may not always be precisely distinguished or sequenced. Though not perfect knowledge either, hopes enlivened expectations are with surety true. In the geometry of restored theology, hope has a greater circumference than faith. If faith increases, the perimeter of hope stretches correspondingly. In verses 43 through 47 we read, And again, behold, I say unto you that he cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. If so, his faith and hope is vain, for none is acceptable before God, save the meek and lowly in heart. And if a man be meek and lowly in heart, and confess by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity. For if he have not charity, he is nothing. Wherefore, he must needs have charity. And charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever, and whoso is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Dallin H. Oaks said, Charity, the pure love of Christ, is not an act, 
but a condition or state of being. Charity is attained through a succession of acts that result in a conversion. Charity is something one becomes. Thus, as Moroni declared, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit the place prepared for them in the mansions of the Father. Jeffrey R. Holland said, The greater definition of the pure love of Christ, however, is not what we as Christians try but largely fail to demonstrate towards others, but rather what Christ totally succeeded in demonstrating toward us. True charity has been known only once. It is shown perfectly and purely in Christ's unfailing, ultimate, and atoning love for us. Thus, the miracle of Christ's charity both saves and changes us. His atoning love saves us from death and hell, as well as from carnal, sensual, and devilish behavior. That redeeming love also transforms the soul, lifting it above fallen standards to something far more noble, far more holy. Wherefore, we must cleave unto charity, Christ's pure love of us, and our determined effort toward pure love of Him and all others. For without it we are nothing, and our plan for eternal happiness is utterly wasted. Without the redeeming love of Christ in our lives, all other qualities, even virtuous qualities and exemplary good works, fall short of salvation and joy. So how do we attain charity? Verse 48 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Brothers and sisters, if we want charity, if we want to develop that, we have to develop that. It's necessary. We're nothing without it. We have to pray unto the Father with all the energy of our heart and strive to follow the commandments of Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 talks about the abomination of baptizing younger children. In verse 8 we read, Listen to the words of Christ your Redeemer, your Lord and your God. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken away from them in me, that it hath no power over them. And the law of circumcision is done away in me. In the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 11, it explains that circumcision was a token of the covenant. And the word token is the key here. The ancient Jews, in their apostasy, made it into a necessary ordinance to save male children from original sin. But verse 8 says that it was fulfilled with the atonement of Jesus Christ, just as the law of Moses was. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 74, verses 2 through 7, we get a great explanation if you're looking for it. It's a little bit long, so I won't go into it, but it's a great explanation. In verses 9 through 15, it talks about how little children are alive in Christ. And Joseph Smith said, The doctrine of baptizing children, or they must welter in hell, is a doctrine not true, not supported in Holy Writ, and is not consistent with the character of God. All children are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and the moment that children leave this world, they are taken to the bosom of Abraham. Verses 22 through 24 read, For behold, that all little children are alive in Christ, and also all they that are without the law. For the power of redemption cometh on all them that have no law, 
Wherefore, he that is not condemned, or he that is under no condemnation, cannot repent, and unto such baptism availeth nothing. But it is mockery before God, denying the mercies of Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit, and putting trust in dead works. Behold, my son, this thing ought not to be, for repentance is unto them that are under condemnation and under the curse of a broken law. In other words, Christ's atonement covers all who are not accountable because they are either incapable of such, such as little children, or mentally handicapped, or those who have simply not been taught the truth. Of these people, President Joseph Fielding Smith explained, they are redeemed without baptism and will go to the celestial kingdom of God, there, we believe, to have their faculties or other deficiencies restored according to the Father's mercy and justice. And this includes people who were not given the opportunity to hear the gospel. We know that they will be given that opportunity in the next life. In verses 28 and 29, Mormon is lamenting about how wicked the Lamanites and the Nephites are and what's happened to them and why it's happened to them. And we talked earlier about the light of Christ. And look what happens when a people deny the Holy Ghost and the light of Christ long enough. Verse 28 says, Pray for them, my son, that repentance may come unto them. But behold, I fear lest the Spirit hath ceased striving with them. And in this part of the land they are also seeking to put down all power and authority which cometh from God, and they are denying the Holy Ghost. And after rejecting so great a knowledge, my son, they must perish soon, under the fulfilling of the prophecies which were spoken by the prophets, as well as the words of our Savior himself. Bruce R. McConkie said, Many choose to walk in the carnal paths and go contrary to the enticings of the Spirit. It is possible to sear one's conscience to the point that the Spirit will withdraw its influence, and men will no longer know or care about anything that is decent and edifying. For my Spirit shall not always strive with man, saith the Lord of hosts. Mormon goes on in chapter 9 to describe the conditions that the Lamanites and Nephites are in just before he dies, and how they got to this point of completely losing the Spirit. In verse 3 he says, And now behold, my son, I fear lest the Lamanites shall destroy this people, for they do not repent. And Satan stirreth them up continually to anger one with another. And that's the key right there is anger. Now according to Yoda, fear leads to anger, and anger leads to hate, and hate leads to the dark side. So indeed, anger has been a key ingredient to the destruction of many people. The Jaredites were angry with Ether for calling them to repentance. So were the Jews with Lehi and the Savior for that matter. And think about how much anger is so easily stirred up in today against people for even just simply disagreeing. Lynn G. Robbins said, A cunning part of Satan's strategy is to dissociate anger from agency, making us believe that we are victims of an emotion that we cannot control. We hear, I lost my temper. Losing one's temper is an interesting choice of words that has become a widely used idiom. To lose something implies not meaning to, accidental, involuntary, not responsible, careless perhaps, but not responsible. He made me mad. This is another phrase we hear, also implying lack of control or agency. This is a myth that must be debunked. No one makes us mad. Others don't make us angry. There is no force involved. Becoming angry is a conscious choice, a decision. Therefore, we can make the choice not to become angry. We choose. 
To those who say, but I can't help myself, author William Wilbanks responds, nonsense. Aggression, suppressing the anger, talking about it, screaming and yelling are all learned strategies in dealing with anger. We choose the one that has proved effective for us in the past. Ever notice how seldom we lose control when frustrated by our boss, but how often we do when annoyed by friends or family? So according to Yoda again, anger leads to hate. And what is the opposite of hate? It's love. Again, charity is the answer. If fear is the opposite of faith, then charity is the opposite of anger. And those things we need to build up. We need to build up our faith, hope, and charity. In verse 7, we read how the Lamanites are doing horrible things to the Nephite prisoners. But in verse 9, we read that the Nephites are worse. And he uses these words, after depriving them of that which was most dear and precious above all things, which is chastity and virtue. And we need to be careful here, because this is what Elder Richard G. Scott said in case of rape and incest, etc. He said, I solemnly testify that when another's acts of violence, perversion, or incest hurt you terribly, against your will. You are not responsible and you must not feel guilty. You may be left scarred by abuse, but those scars need not be permanent. In the eternal plan, in the Lord's timetable, those injuries can be made right as you do your part. And how do they get to this state? Verse 20 says, And now, my son, I dwell no longer upon this horrible scene. Behold, thou knowest the wickedness of this people. Thou knowest that they are without principle and past feeling and their wickedness doth exceed that of the Lamanites. They have completely given up the ability to feel the Holy Ghost. And in his parting words to his son Moroni, he says in verse 25 and 26, My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, may his sufferings and death, and the showing of his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long-suffering and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. And may the grace of God the Father, whose throne is high in the heavens, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who sitteth on the right hand of his power, until all things shall become subject unto him, be and abide with you forever. Amen. Neil A. Maxwell spoke of everyday hope, like, I, I hope the weather is good, or I hope that we have tacos for dinner, in comparison to real hope, which is the ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. Think about this when, in all seriousness, we are left hoping the trials that we are about to endure and the worst trials that we are going to go through are taken away or eased. He said, ultimate hope is a different matter. It is tied to Jesus and the blessings of the great atonement, blessings resulting in the universal resurrection and the precious opportunity provided thereby for us to practice emancipating repentance making possible what the scriptures call a perfect brightness of hope. Moroni confirmed, What is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ. Real hope, therefore, is not associated with things mercurial, but rather with things immortal and eternal. And in verse 26, we read about grace. And true to the faith, we read, The word grace, as used in the scriptures, refers primarily to the divine help and strength we receive through the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to needing grace for our ultimate salvation, you need this enabling power every day of your life. As you draw near to your Heavenly Father in diligence, humility, and meekness, 
He will uplift and strengthen you through His grace. Brothers and sisters, how blessed we are to have these last final parting words of Mormon to us and to His Son to help us navigate these trying times in this world of spiritual decay. We can hold fast to the hope, to the faith, and to the charity of Jesus Christ, our Master. He is the way. He is a sure winner. And if we are on his team, we will win. And I know that to be true. And I testify of his divinity in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thanks and have a blessed day.